In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Almighty God, whose Son Jesus Christ fasted 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted as we are, yet without sin. In this first line of today's collect, we have all the themes that are woven through all the readings today. Three, in fact, the wilderness, fasting, and temptation. We'll start with fasting. What is fasting? It's, it's a kind of abstaining, I think. Refraining from something for a time. It's learning to say no so you can say yes later on. This is Lent, and we talk of saying this no all the time, of giving up something for Lent. Now, we're not being asked to give up something bad. We're being asked to give up something good again so we can have it back. And what's the good of that, we might ask. If you're going to give up something bad, why not be done with it? But what's the point of giving up something good? The point is so that we don't take it for granted. So we learn how to say not just no, but no thanks. The second place where we meet is in the wilderness. If you've ever been in the wilderness, you know it's a place where you're in it for yourself. It's you against the world or against anyone else who might be there. Like the Wild West or the Howlendith of Iceland or the Arabah, where David went to hide out with his bandits, an exile with a price on his head. We've heard three stories about exile in a way, if you like. These are the stories about baptism and the flood. We have Jesus' baptism in the gospel. We have the flood at the beginning. Baptism is a kind of wilderness experience too. And it's a fasting experience. It's about giving up your life, going down in the water, popping right up again, and hopefully getting your life right back again. I've never seen anyone so far literally surrender their life in the waters of baptism, and we hope we don't. But spiritually, it's about that process of giving up something, getting it back, but better. The flood, as our reading said is a type of baptism. It's the drowning of the whole world in the waters, the wiping out of all life, except those who are saved and who are carried through it. And then as they emerge again and the waters subside, getting life back, but better. Well, not for long, but that's the idea of what God is up to. Now, when you're in the wilderness, we're back in the wilderness, the idea is that you can do pretty well what you want if you can get away with it there. You get what you can, you grab it, and it's yours. Might is right. What's yours is yours for the taking and for the keeping. If someone else doesn't get it from you, someone bigger and badder and stronger. In other words, there's not much room for thanks in this world or much need to it. You're probably not paying much attention to God in all this. You just see what you want to get, and you get it. It's very lateral. Where is God in all this? Well, in Jesus, very much active. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Wait a minute. 
The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And when he's in the wilderness, he's in the wilderness 40 days, he's tempted by Satan. So God drives him into the wilderness to meet Satan and be tempted. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. For the proverbial 40 days, as in the ark. When Satan shows up and tempts him, we don't know what he tempts him with. We presume because he's fasting that it's with food, that it's hunger that's driving him through. That's not the only temptation, as we know. Satan is unsuccessful. He withdraws to show up another day. At this point, Jesus is joined by these animals and angels who wait with him and on him. The animals, of course, as they gather, bring us back to that covenant that Noah and the ark have brought to our attention. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth, every living creature of all flesh. Never again shall all flesh be cut off, God says, so on. The text is quite emphatic. The Noahic covenant we have read, her, read earlier between God and the earth, not just between God and humankind. It is not rescinded. And it is surely a reiteration of the original covenant in Genesis 1, also never rescinded, where the Spirit likewise hovered over the waters, as the Spirit did to Jesus that day in the muddy Jordan, and restates Jesus' authority over creation, the earth, the place where he shall come to reign at the end of the aeon. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given one another, so you may devour one another. No, I have given every green plant for food. In the original covenant in the garden, we share the vegetation with our brother and sister creatures. Nothing here about eating creatures. That comes after the flood. When creatures start killing creatures, then everything changes. And that's not after the flood. That's right at the beginning. Humans start this, and humans corrupt creation. Humans, you will recall, way back with Cain and Abel. Creatures don't catch on until after, and the corruption of the earth that calls forth this flood is itself a violent response from God to this violence that has gone on and on. So the pattern has become ingrained somehow. How do these creatures who once were created to dwell in harmony evolve or develop to deal with the fact that they are living in a violent world? Does it show itself? Ian Gilchrist, whose magnificent book, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, a book strongly recommended by N.T. Wright, points out that in this fallen post-Diluvian world, creatures who are looking for lunch must also simultaneously be on the lookout, lest they become lunch for somebody else. And the creatures who have developed that ability to sort of divide their focus and split their attention are the ones that do well. 
A narrow focus, on the one hand, is needed to look at the earth before you to be able to separate food from other stuff, wheat from chaff, whereas a wide focus is necessary to scan the horizon for those who have their eye on you. Birds and creeping creatures start off with eyes on either side of their head. But even though our eyes gradually move center, if you accept the evolutionary paradigm, so we could swing through trees, the two brains in our head, to which these eyes were directly continued, connected, rather, continue their complementary development. We see how those patterns play out in the church, for instance. We pull out our magnifying glasses for Bible study. When we do Bible study, we take the Bible up, we put it under a microscope, we get out a scalpel, we chop it up, we abstract from it, we rearrange it. Not much of the Bible left by the time you're done with it, but you have it in bits and pieces before you. When we go to prayer, we call upon the right brain, which scans the whole horizon for input. We start to listen to God, and we begin the work of putting the whole thing back together again. We pray. Now, the wilderness, the wildness, is the place for contemplation for the right brain. Gerald May, in The Wisdom of Wilderness, another neuroscientist and a Christian, writes, I have studied the psychology of contemplation for many years. I know contemplation is a state of awareness that is, among other things, wide open and completely present to whatever is going on in the immediate moment. I also know that most of us aren't that wide open or immediately present most of the time. Indeed, our brains have learned to pay attention to specific tasks at hand by actively excluding background noises, distracting thoughts, and anything else we deem irrelevant. The brain has to work hard to do this, tuning out steady background stimuli. It has always seemed to me, he goes on, that the true natural presence, true wild being, involves no tuning out of anything. It must be absolutely contemplative, openly receptive to all the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and feelings that exist in each immediate moment. I believe it is civilization, the taming of our nature that has taught us to focus on a single task and tune out what we consider distractions. Civilization, in other words, the work of Cain and Abel, the building of cities that came after the exile from the garden. Such single-mindedness, therefore, comes with a high price. It's sudden evolution into bloody-mindedness, when the task at hand is finding food, as we've said, when food is scarce. The left brain, which controls the right hand, that hand that is always prepared to grasp and grab, has no use for wilderness, no use for anything about creation except its usefulness. It is their creation to be comprehended, apprehended, and used. It should all be turned into one giant factory farm or one giant factory, coal-powered, preferably. The right brain, on the other hand, is ready to reach out, palm upturned, and prayerfully receive what comes from the hand of God organic, assuredly. In our pattern of interaction between ourselves and our environment, as we now call it, 
we would do well to put God back into the middle of all of these transactions. To reach with the right brain rather than the right hand. Go to prayer rather than grabbing and gobbling up whatever or whatever, whoever looks good to us. We should learn to stop when our appetite is aroused. Say no thanks. This thing, this person is good but it is no good for me to take because it is not for me, for my use. This being has a life of his or her own, a destiny, a vocation. I affirm its beauty and I hand it back to you, Lord. If you see fit, you may return it, and my hands are turned up to receive in the attitude of prayer. Again, this is how temptation works. We're told again and again that the key to temptation is just to say no, but there's nothing in it about spanks. We remember the famous and rather failed campaign, just say no to drugs. I admit I'm standing before you today thanks to a very powerful concoction of opioids and steroids, which are dealing with a rather smashed up uh, disc in the lower vertebrae of my back. So I'm not about to say no to drugs anytime soon. <laughs> I hope I get out of the haze that they've induced in my thinking. But what I'm saying is that anytime we are tempted, it's probably by something good. For when we simply say no, deny it, and push it away with contempt, we are showing contempt for the God who made it. And it's no wonder that our attempts are such failures. You have to say thank you every time you're tempted, and then no thank you. Thank you for letting me share this moment of creation with this beautiful creature, with this beautiful object, and Lord, it's yours. You do with it. You see this thing, this being, fulfill their vocation. Stimulus response. But we have to get in there and say, wait. And this is the fasting moment. Say, wait, before the moment we grab and begin to consume. Our attention, our narrow fo focus, in other words, is caught by that which it seeks, which we want. But before we even try to get it and put it in our mind, we have to get into our head first that it's not ours to get. It's God's. We give it back. In our hearts, not with our hands, we say no thanks and wait, wait in the silence. We tune our hearts to God to listen, to hear, to understand. We discipline ourselves in the silence, trusting, as the collect says, that as God knows our weakness, our hunger, our need, so we too have learned that he will not let us down. He is the one to be trusted to meet those needs. And we know well his power to save, to save rather. One more point and I'm gone. Finally, why do you think God gives us anything back, anything at all? Because he realizes that it was really ours, really ours all along? No, because we realize sooner or later that everything is his, and that we are his. Our lives are not our own. They were bought at a price. Therefore, he gives what is his to his own. We own nothing. Nothing is ours for the taking, nothing on this planet. All we may ask then is not may we take it, but how may we take care of it? How may we do with it, Lord, what you want? Well, it's in our care. 
Imagine what could be done if we all always thought like that. Amen.